0: Driving down Main Street and Bridgeport, Connecticut, you'll pass two boarded-up houses surrounded by a chain-linked fence. The houses may not look like much today, but they tell a rich story about the history of the city. They're the homes of sisters Mary and Eliza Freeman, two of the most prominent Black women in pre-Civil War Connecticut. Fast forward to the present, and one Bridgeport woman is on a mission to restore those houses and preserve their story. This is Disrupted, I'm Kalilah Brown-Dean. Today, we're looking back at how Black Americans have shaped Connecticut history. Later, we'll hear about the 29th Infantry. It was a Black Civil War Regiment in Connecticut. And we'll talk about how decades before the abolishment of slavery, HBCUs promoted access to education as a path to freedom. But first, Maisa Tisdale. She has deep roots in the Bridgeport community, going back six generations. She lived her life within a six-mile radius of where her great-great-great-grandmother was born. Her parents were civil rights organizers and activists. Maissa has dedicated much of her career to uncovering the rich history of a planned neighborhood for Black and Indigenous Americans in Bridgeport in the 1800s. As president and CEO of the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center for History and Community, she's working to renovate these historic homes of the Freeman sisters. We last talked to Maisa on our show about two years ago, and we wanted an update because the center was recently awarded a $750,000 grant by the National Park Service. It's part of the Historic Preservation Fund's African American Civil Rights Grant Program. Maissa Tisdale, it's great to have you back on the show. It's great to be back. You know, we spoke about two years ago about the Freeman Center, about the history of those founders, and what it means nationally and globally to have this project. But for our listeners who may not remember that conversation, give us a brief overview of how the Freeman Center got started.
1: Well, the Freeman Center grew out of a movement, a grassroots movement, to save the Mary and Eliza Freeman houses in Bridgeport, Connecticut, from demolition. And the houses were built in 1848 by two sisters, and they're the last remaining houses of one of the oldest settlements of free people of color in the
0: nation. So that history of having two women who were at the forefront of that effort during that time when we know women overall had very few rights that were protected. And to have these two Black women say, we want to come together, create this sense of community and building together. It's not lost on me that you are the person who's helping to continue that legacy. What does it mean for you to be president and CEO of the center to continue that legacy and share its importance more broadly? What does that mean to you?
1: It means everything. Um, You know, when you when you're growing up and people ask you what you want to be, you think of things that you've heard of. I want to be a doctor or a lawyer or um, a nurse, but you don't, I never could have imagined actually having a job that immersed me in the history of African-American people, especially in the local history here in Bridgeport, Connecticut. So for me, I've always had a love of history, and my mother's family um, arrived in Bridgeport not long after the Civil War in the 1870s. My father's family came during the Great Migration up from the South, and so they were history buffs. But they also passed on family history, and I knew this place was a special place. And over the years, you, I've heard so many disparaging things about Bridgeport, and not everyone holds their head up with pride but i always felt i knew in my heart of hearts that there was something special here something i could feel it in the soil beneath my feet and it turns out that bridgeport connecticut has very deep african american roots and of course indigenous um roots because though these are the people who who um you know lived here and originated here and to bring so many groups of um people of African descent together in the 1800s and so many people from different tribes together and have them build a settlement in an urban community that had a reach be throughout the Atlantic it was just amazing and then to think that this community was right here all along so I I wouldn't have never dreamed that I could really just uh, work every day at something that was so close to my heart.
0: Dreams are powerful. They're powerful for inspiring us in many ways, convicting us as well. And when you were here on the show two years ago, you talked about your dream of spreading the story of the Freeman Center to more people, helping them understand not just that history, but that present real day connection to strength and power and agency that too often gets overlooked for people in Bridgeport. And that's really part of a national story about community visibility. That dream has continued and has materialized in some ways with the latest award for the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center from the National Park Service. You have now received a $750,000 grant as part of the Historic Preservation Fund's African-American Civil Rights Grant Program, What does that grant mean to your work, to the the work of the center, and how will those funds allow you to continue those dreams and make them into realities for the people of Bridgeport and those more broadly who will now be able to know the center?
1: So this grant is really important. We had received um, grant monies, um, which are in escrow from the state of Connecticut. We had $1.6 million set aside in escrow. Now, the dilemma was um, that this money has to come into the restoration process of the Eliza House last. It's the last money in. But we needed the first money in so that we could get started. And we wrote a grant um, to the National Park Service, to the Civil Rights um, Program, um, Preservation Program, for that first seven hundred fifty thousand dollars that we needed to actually start construction on the site and then we can move on into the funds that are waiting in escrow so we really really needed the money to start the project for the national park service to step up is extremely significant and validating for all of the people um, who have pushed for this project from the very beginning because what we had to do is prove the significance of these houses and the Little Liberia community to the national struggle, the national evolution of civil and human rights. And so that was a story that unfolded little by little as we did our research, where we saw that Little Liberia was not just a place people moved because they didn't have anywhere else to go or because white people weren't nice to them back then. This was a planned settlement. It was, in essence, self-segregating, and it was a place where people could work and they could also serve other um, people of color. So it was a sanctuary city that that allowed um, people from diverse indigenous and African um, american backgrounds to come and be whoever they were in a place where they were safe they were extremely prosperous because they leveraged um trade ties and networks um, with the black atlantic with other free black communities but what we saw that we didn't know when we first started researching is that they also played a role in trying to bring about freedom and opportunity for um, people of color. So I found it really interesting that early on, one of the advocates who was fighting for the right to vote in Connecticut, um, Connecticut's an interesting place. This, pro- this project has taught me a lot. Um, Black men who had who had property were allowed to vote when this state was a British colony. So the British had actually allowed free black men to vote. Many of our men actually fought in in the uh, war for independence, both black and indigenous men. But when this state became part of the union, when they became part of the United States, they reserved citizenship in Connecticut only for white people. So all of a sudden, um, black people were disenfranchised. So Connecticut actually never did give black people the right to vote. For a hundred years after the founding of the United States, in Connecticut, people didn't have the black people didn't have the right to vote. They had to wait until enslaved people got the right to vote. Um, after the Civil War in the amendment to the Constitution. And so this is the story that we get to tell um, the Na- within the National Park Service. They have a civil rights framework, and we're part of the, um, the era that they call the emerging cause um, from 1776 to 1865.
0: Mice says someone who grew up in the South and moved to Connecticut. In the South, we have this sense of history, We, we know how these laws worked, and we often have this glamorized view of the North as being this place of limitless opportunity, unbound freedom that people wanted to go to. And it is why the history that you just shared is so critically important for all of us to understand that this truly was a national experience Even here in Connecticut that we think of, you know, as being progressive in particular ways, Black people, Indigenous people were still denied the very basic rights of citizenship, but also denied the ability to just be and to be in a safe place where they and their families could thrive. I want to juxtapose that with the reality that we're seeing in Connecticut and across the country of this denial of history, of this refusal to teach history and its its complexity and its completeness. And even here in Connecticut, debates about banning books because the, the material may be uncomfortable to people. When you think about where we are in this national moment, and I would call it a national crisis, and you think about the work that you're doing at the Freeman Center and what this grant will allow you to do, what do you see is that future that you're building toward, and how the Freeman Center can be positioned to help us tell this story more completely?
1: Well, that's why I think it's so significant that we'll actually be able to start construction. So this was one of these stories that was lost to history or erased from history. Um, and it wasn't a flattering one for this mythology of the of the liberal North, where, you know, good white people started an underground railroad and people could come here and there was freedom. And it it turns out that that wasn't true at all. It turns out that free black people um, established and ran the underground railroad and found um, white allies to, to assist. And that's what was going on in Little Liberia. We would have no memory at all this story was brought back to modern memory in um, the 1980s. But for these two houses built by these two sisters standing, the last houses standing of this community, we would never know. It becomes important to preserve um, structures when it comes to a history like ours that has been erased or distorted which in turn, uh, in, in turn distorts the historical narrative of the nation as a whole. And I think it's important for people to feel uncomfortable. Being uncomfortable with, with history that is painful is a good thing. It shows that you have a heart. It shows that you have a conscience. So instead of saying, oh, I'm so uncomfortable, I don't wanna hear it, you should say, I am grateful that we have evolved that I am not this person and that I feel discomfort in this situation because it shows I have a conscience and we get beyond the discomfort and there's a kind of sense of unity that comes after that discomfort. Um, and, and we can all then go ahead and grow together. So um, the Freeman houses, bringing them online, as an experience, a place that people can come and discuss and, and be face to face with the past is an important thing. And it also shows in terms um, for our own people, I think it's an inspiration because these folks had um, a sense of agency. And in a time when their humanity was, people said they weren't human beings at all. Um, they could still have these accomplishments and look out for each other and arrange a, and have a place where people were free. And so if you don't look at the bad things, you also can't celebrate the progress. You, you need to see the, the distance that we've traveled as a nation, the journey that we've made, And so the discomfort is just the first emotion, and others will come after. So preservation, conservation, it's not just about the houses. It's about preserving a culture. It's about preserving the land and renewing the land. And it's about preserving the future of this nation where everyone's appreciated and giving us some kind of stability in that.
0: Maisa Tisdell is president and CEO of the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center for History and Community. Thank you so much, Maisa.
1: Thank you for having me today.
0: Coming up, we hear from an ancestor of a soldier who served in Connecticut's 29th Infantry. It was a Black Civil War regiment. This is Disrupted. Stay with us.
2: Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashanker, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more.
1: ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity.
2: For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umeshanker has advice on the first most important step.
1: I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular
2: basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health
0: This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. In January 1864, Frederick Douglass stood on a balcony overlooking an army encampment in the Fairhaven section of New Haven. He addressed Connecticut's 29th and 30th Volunteer Infantry, comprised of African-American men recruited to fight in the Civil War.
3: You are pioneers of the liberty of your race. With the United States cap on your head, the United States eagle on your belt, the United States musket on your shoulder, not all the powers of darkness can prevent you from becoming American citizens.
0: One of the men in the crowd that day was 38-year-old Private Orrin Benjamin Hawley. Oren's great-great-grandson is Charles Ben Hawley. He discovered his ancestor's fault in the Civil War and now shares those lessons across the country. Ben is a West Haven, Connecticut native, and he currently lives in Washington, D.C. We talked to him back in 2020 about how he found out about his family's connection to the civil war
2: i came upon this quite by accident i had made uh friends with uh a man who is uh he's passed now but he's a historian uh uh, bill gladstone and bill shared with me that he had found a photograph a photograph in the local new haven Connecticut newspaper. The photograph was of the 29th Colored Volunteer Infantry Regiment and showed the regiment in camp at Beaufort, South Carolina. Les, having heard that the family members were in the Civil War, got a copy of the roster and immediately noticed seven holy names on the roster. Thus began my trips to the National Archives in Washington, D.C. to discover more about these men. I was actually an amateur genealogist digging through the files and was delighted to find Oren Benjamin Hawley, our great-great-grandfather, a private in the 29th Regiment. Oren Benjamin Hawley was born on October 2nd, 1826 in the town of Reading, Connecticut, the son of Harry Benjamin Hawley and died September 9, 1900 in New Haven, Connecticut. Both Oren and his wife, Mary, are buried at the Evergreen Cemetery in New Haven. The couple was the proud parents of 17 children. When I learned that, I almost fell out of my seat. Who has 17 children? But they did. And then we were to discover later on that two of the children died. And this was quite common in agricultural families.
0: Around 200,000 black soldiers fought in that war, including men from Connecticut. Here's Ben Hawley talking about the men heading off to war from New Haven.
2: They assembled on the green uh, and uh, the, the ladies of the, the, the soldiers, which was quite common in those days, carried flowers. And as they marched through the streets to the waterfront, they threw flowers. And uh, I, I, I just try to picture that. And that just brings up a vision that I'm happy and, and proud to talk about. Um, they uh, boarded the the battleship warrior um, and left New Haven, oh, uh, March 8th. They boarded the ship and, and went on to uh, South Carolina, Beaufort, where they trained and did uh, exercises that got them used to being soldiers. If you would realize, too, that these were men who probably never held a weapon in their lives, didn't know left face or right face or how to salute, but they learned very well. Frederick Douglass spoke to the 29 after there was some complaining that the uh, the soldiers, they they, they were Angry because they didn't have any black officers. Um, so, Fred gathered them around and talked to them and said, I'm paraphrasing now listen, you have to learn your trade first. He said, Look at your uh, weapons. Who made the weapon? The white man. Your uniforms. Who made the uniforms? The white man. Learn your trade, do it well, and then you can lead uh, the uh, black soldiers. And uh, I, I thought that was very significant um, for, uh, for Fred to say that.
0: I think there's a, a life lesson there about that idea of dignity and to think about these were Black men at a time who were denied dignity, denied humanity, denied the very basic protections of citizenship, but were willing to come together and fight for something that was bigger than they were. And that legacy, we hear it. We hear the pride in your voice as you talk about that regiment and talk about your family's connection to it.
2: You know, they, they, back then, when people enlisted for the Civil War, they, they all went, the whole neighborhood went. Um, Oren, my uh, ancestor, and his brother Aaron um, had his father in law. Orin had his father in law in the same uh, unit. Can you imagine having your father in law next to you? You know, because soldiers they they carouse and they play cards and they drink and they curse and all that. And <laughs> can you picture uh, this man, Orin, uh, having the eye of his father in law on him while everybody else had a good time? <laughs> I- I I just wonder how that might have gone. One of the
0: things that when we think about change, particularly for Black veterans, you know, we know that Black veterans returned from Vietnam and often encountered the same kind of prejudice and discrimination that they thought they were fighting against, of, of not feeling fully a part of the country that they were fighting for. Was that the same for this regiment as they returned back home to Connecticut or did having that status, that military status, afford them some level of recognition that they may not have had otherwise?
2: There there, there were some incidents where uh, because of the color of the skin, there were uh, arguments and fights, et cetera, et cetera. But generally they were accepted. Now, when they were discharged in October 1865 in Hartford, uh, Governor Buckingham, and another one, he made a long speech about, you men have done well, you've served your, your, your state and your country well, now just be prepared because of the color of your skin, you may not get a, a good break, and we're proud of you, and we want you to walk with dignity. I'm paraphrasing now, but Governor Buckingham was really in their corner. Now in 1864, now remember they had been in the war since 1863. So they fought a year without getting paid at all. And Governor Buckingham went to the legislature, got the money and made sure that they were paid. And uh, I have to salute the governor for for his his steadfast support of uh, these colored soldiers.
0: Now, in addition to being a descendant of the 29th, you also are part of of Massachusetts 54th Regiment, which commemorates one of the first African-American regiments of the Civil War. What drew you to becoming a reenactor and how do you share that experience with others?
2: I've always been fascinated with history. And then when I found out that I had a Civil War ancestor, I mean, I went bonkers. And I, 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 my wife will tell you that when I meet somebody and they mention the Civil War, it's like I've recited this. Let me tell you about the 29th, the black soldiers who fought from Connecticut. It's, it's a standard sentence I begin my my talk with. Um, I, I, I'm just very, very proud, and I hope the rest of the country and the rest of the state learned of this and of their bravery. Um, there were no desertions uh, in, in the whole regiment. You know, sometimes when I, I make my little presentations here and there and uh, they're called living histories and you, know, you go to a gathering and people are standing there. So you you stand there and you give me a little, little story. And so many times, people will say, especially white people, they'll say, I didn't know. I didn't know. And and the question is not rhetorical. Why didn't we know? That question Uh, of, of what we can do,
0: what we can do together, what we can do collectively to address some of these concerns, but to also have that shared sense of ownership is also important when we think about the connection to lineage and legacy. What's something that you learned about your ancestor, Oren, that makes you particularly proud?
2: They were proud. Oh, let me tell you, Oren's wife, um, Mary Ann, after Oren had passed, uh, she went to get his uh, bounty. That was a, a, pay, a, you know, a bounty. It was a payment for his service. And she wrote to uh, whoever she wrote to in, in, in Connecticut. And they wrote back and they said, well, you, you can't be. You're not um, Oren's wife. His wife's name was uh, Lucy Sands. And uh, make a long story short, Lucy wrote back to the government. And I have a letter. I have the letter, or at least a copy of it. And she said, Oren was a good man. Uh, he and I lived together lived together back in 1880 lord <laughs> she said well, that's that. a scandal we, we, if we lived together and but we never married and uh, things well, we, we, we decided to separate and and uh, i i think Oren is a good man and his wife Marianne, is a good woman too and they both deserve Um, the recognition by this, this payment, this payment of the bounty. I mean, you tell me, that especially tells me what he was made of. Uh, I'm very proud of that fact and uh, very proud that I have the, the letter too, or a copy of it.
0: There's now a monument dedicated to the 29th regiment in New Haven. Why do you think those kinds of monuments and markers are important for remembering the history that you've been talking about?
2: It, it, they're very important because they stand as a quote-unquote memorial to their, uh, their, their patriotism and their fortitude for fighting in the Civil War. And Again, uh, most people didn't know uh, and, and it recognizes that. And that's, that's a good part. That's a great part of history.
0: Ben Hawley is a descendant of Connecticut's 29th Civil War Regiment. He's a West Haven native and currently lives in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you. I appreciate your indulgence.
0: You can find photos of the 29th Infantry on our website at ctpublic.org slash disrupted. Coming up. We explore the history of historically black colleges and universities and their role in promoting access to education even before the abolishment of slavery. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back.
2: When we think of slavery
0: in the U.S., we don't usually think of Connecticut, but slavery happened here. The probate inventory mentions three cows, two barns, one enslaved Negro woman, and one Indian boy. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org
1: unforgotten.
2: Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture.
0: Connecticut's own Jacques Pepin is a culinary icon. When you make a contribution to Connecticut Public today, you can experience a once-in-a-lifetime dinner with the acclaimed PBS chef and author on Monday, May 6th at the gorgeous Oceanfront Madison Beach Hotel in Madison, Connecticut, sponsored by Isana Plastic Surgery Center and MedSpa and Fuchs Financial. For tickets, visit ctpublic.org Pepin. Welcome back to Disrupted, I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. The majority of HBCUs in this country are located in the South, and it makes sense given the geographic concentration of black communities and the historical development of these institutions. But in 1831, New Haven had the opportunity to be home of the first HBCU in the Northeast. A black minister named Peter Williams joined with a white abolitionist named Simeon Joslin to announce a plan to start a black college. When the mayor of New Haven heard about the plan, he wasn't happy and worked to prevent it. Here's more of the story from a People's History of Dixwell walking tour. It's voiced by students from the Metropolitan Business Academy in New Haven.
3: The mayor formed a 13-member committee against the idea for a black college. The committee of lawyers, Yale faculty, and members of the New Haven elite argued against the college. In their own words, they wrote, The establishment of a college in the same place to educate the colored population is incompatible with the prosperity, if not the existence of the present institutions of learning. It would be destructive to the best interest of the city. In other words, they revealed their racism by claiming that a black college would damage Yale and New Haven. They went on to say that a black college would be dangerous because it would destabilize the institution of slavery and bring the country one step closer to abolition. With a vote of 700 to four, the idea for a Negro college was turned down. Can you imagine how much better and how much different New Haven would be if our city was home to one of the first HBCUs in the country?
0: Can you imagine? The first African-American School of Higher Education was founded a few years later in 1837. To talk more about that history, we're joined now by Dr. Jelani Favors. He's the Henry E. Frye Distinguished Professor of History at North Carolina A&T State University. He's author of Shelter and a Time of Storm, How Black Colleges Foster Generations of Leadership and Activism. I spoke with Professor Favors back in 2021, and I asked him to take us back to the beginning, to the first historically black college known then as the Institute for Colored Youth in Pennsylvania.
3: When you look at the construction of of this institution in Philadelphia, we also have to place in context what's actually going on in America in the 1830s. Um, Not only are we seeing an aggressive defense of slavery um, that's emerging, Uh, within the academy (laughs) but we also see an aggressive defense of white supremacy Uh, and so as the book suggests um, these were indeed shelters in a time of storm Uh, we must remember that it was illegal even to teach Uh, enslaved Africans to to read um, throughout the Deep South. And for those Black folks who were in the North, they were fighting to remain free. And again, having their their humanity questioned. So uh, when this institution begins in 1837, it is a radical concept, a radical idea um, prior to this, you had institutions like the African Free School that existed in New York. Um, so there were attempts to to create um, headway, right, into to educating Black folks. But from the very beginning, it was very clear that these institutions were going to be going to be doing a different type of education. The students who attended these institutions were being taught to see themselves as cultural and political change agents um, to use their voice to articulate for a, a end to slavery, but also uh, for an end to white supremacy. And that's exactly what, what they did.
0: That idea that for Cheney to be created in Pennsylvania in 1837, before some of the protections that we now think of were embedded in the Constitution in order to support students of color, was, as you said, an act of resistance. Who were the students that were attending those early HBCUs to understand that by going to a college to seek higher education or access to education in general could actually be challenging their safety as well?
3: Well, you know, many of them were the sons and daughters of of former slaves themselves. And and so um, they arrive into these institutions um, with, with the idea that um, they understand the preciousness of, of liberty. They understand um, the value of, of freedom. Uh, and, and so when they enter into these institutions, um, you know that's one of the thing that one of the things that I think is special about black colleges. It simply wasn't about um, you know, learning Greek and Latin and, and science and chemistry. But as I argue in the book, it's about a second curriculum that emerged within these institutions. And that second curriculum was, um, by the ideas, buoyed of the, by the ideas of, of race consciousness and idealism and cultural nationalism. And that's aided by not simply the, the faculty members who are teaching at these institutions, but also this endless parade of, of activists and leaders who are making their way into these institutions to speak to students. Imagine being a student at the Institute for Colored Youth and Henry Harlan Garnett shows up and Frederick Douglass shows up. And these are your, you know, these are the folks who who you are rubbing shoulders with and who are talking to you about the freedom dreams of Black folks and and what you need to be doing to engage in the deconstruction of white supremacy. That's what this space um, was really all about.
0: I want to talk more about that second curriculum, because one of the things that often happened in segregated schools where Black students were taught by Black teachers is that They were charged to remember, yes, you can learn Greek, you can learn Latin, you can learn all of those traditional areas, but learning has to be more holistic. So talk more about how the second curriculum built upon that idea of having students being able to navigate multiple areas of being learned at the same time.
3: You know, I I think that the freedom of Black folks was literally predicated upon that idea. As I said before, you know these were institutions that from the start, they understood that they were educating a group of, of, of young people who the dominant society had deemed inferior. Um, they had deemed uh, um, uh, incapable of adjusting and, and integrating into society. I mean, th- these ideas go back to Thomas Jefferson and so many of the other so-called founding fathers who espoused on these concepts, who wrote on these concepts, who taught, these concepts within predominantly white institutions and so black colleges became a very radically different space and so when we talk about the second curriculum again I define that through race consciousness and idealism and cultural nationalism these are the three concepts which which were brimming within these institutions I talk about this in the introduction of the book of uh, James Weldon Johnson arriving at, at Morehouse College and saying uh, in his, his memoirs that you know everything we talked about dealt with race you know, and again, that's that's in a science class, that's in a math class. That's you know, as, as as students at HBCUs often refer to it as the yard, right? You know, we're just on the yard, just hanging out, and people began to talk about race and, and how they could see themselves again as, as change agents. And so, um, you know, again, from the very start, these concepts were—they they, they charged that it was an energy, uh, an essence um, that flowed through these institutions, and you could not be a student attending a black college. Um, from the very inception in 1837 to, to even today, you could argue, uh, and not be exposed to these concepts of again race consciousness, idealism, cultural nationalism. Now, I want to be very clear when I say idealism, because that's a very broad concept. But two of the two of the words that I came up uh, uh, um, across over and over again when I was doing the research for this book and My primary resource um, was uh, student newspapers, looking through student newspapers and seeing, again, who these students were exposed to, what type of classes were they were taking, who were the faculty who were on these institutions, what were their thoughts as they began to write editorials. Two of the concepts that emerged over and over and over again were citizenship and democracy. I mean, they were constantly talking about citizenship and democracy, which, of course, struck me as odd because those were two of the things that Black folks were denied on a daily basis. But yet they were almost being drilled in it. Right. Again, as if in a a very disciplined way, they knew that they had to be trained within these ideas and concepts in order to articulate for the freedom, dreams and the civil and human rights of, of black folks.
0: Jelani, one of the challenges that I think have been a part of the evolution of hbcus one of those challenges has been understanding their position within this broader structure of the united states this broader framework of denying black agency and denying black brilliance and understanding that they have an obligation to affirm that as you mentioned and to promote citizenship democracy and connection but to also understand that as an institution they have to survive And often that has meant having more conservative leaders who want students to promote the very best of the race, so to speak, was, you know, one of the the phrases used and engaging in a sort of respectability politics of we need to be more conservative in our demeanor because we want to show that, in fact, what we are fighting for is worthy. Do you see that tension playing out across HBCUs historically, or do you think that it depended on, you know, which schools or where they were located or who was leading them?
3: Well, that, that last part is, is an excellent point, is that it definitely depended on, on the schools and the institutions and, and, and ge- geography and, and the politics of, 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 of the environments in which they were surrounded. Uh, but one of the other concepts that I use in the book um, it's this idea of communitas. Um, it, it's a, a term which was originated by a cultural anthropologist and it simply gave me a different way to talk about space and the importance of space. And one of the things that I found very unique about HBCU life um, is that the space in itself was extremely complex, right, is that you get this sort of interstitial space, right, like a space within a space. So at the top you have administrators who are doing what they need to do and saying what they need to say in order to uh, preserve the viability of the institution and and court funding from both state legislators and private benefactors. But at the lower level, this is where you begin to see the work of the second curriculum really really beginning to take place. And and it's a special thing to to see a a faculty member be able to close their doors to, to, to their classroom and to begin to work, right, to 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 embolden and affirm Black youth in their identity, in uh, charging them with. Uh, uh, um, a mission, right, to engage in, in uplifting the dignity and humanity of Black folks, and this is what took place, right. And so, yes, there's sort of this kind of public persona of of, of Black college administrators having to toe that line of of according to to conservatives uh, in order to preserve the financial again viability of the institution. But you also below that begin to see those same administrators specifically and deliberately hiring the type of faculty who would would mold and shape. Uh, a very explosive and powerful generation of young student activists.
0: Every couple of years, there's someone who will ask this question, why do we still need HBCUs? So I you know, give the scholarly side eye whenever I hear that question asked. But I think in this political moment, it's important to address what those institutions continue to contribute. Not just for Black students, not just for Black faculty, but for this country overall. What do you see as the, the place of HBCUs, given this history that you talk about and the sort of current moment?
3: You know, one of the things that um, I think has has really come to light: Black folks are exhausted. Black folks, it's tiring. Right, to, to be a Black person in America and to constantly have your humanity and, and your dignity challenged um, and, and robbed from you. Uh, and, and again, we see this at, at, on so many different levels uh, playing out. And one of the things, again, that HBCUs have provided is simply a space where Black folks could breathe free, right? That, that Black folks could, um, again, be unapologetically Black, um, could be affirmed could not, you know, could, could be in a space and, and, and go without having their humanity and their dignity and their intellect questioned uh, in a way in which it suggested that they never had humanity and intellect from the start. And I think that one of the things that we see taking place, uh, and, and you know, this very well may be a slow building movement, uh, but we do see people acknowledging HBCUs and we do see a number of Black youth who are exhausted by their experiences at predominantly white institutions and say, look, you know, maybe I should consider going to an HBCU to where again, they don't have to deal with these daily questions of, of whether they should be there. Uh, and I think that's important um, to, to maintain spaces like that and to upkeep spaces like that and preserve spaces like that for future generations.
0: Given this sort of broader uh, attention to HBCUs, there are a number of very wealthy donors who have now decided that they want to put their money into these institutions. And one of the things we also know is that, you know, the federal government and other entities were willing to fund particular types of programs at HBCUs. So in particular STEM programs to say, this should be the priority. Do you have any concern about how that may change the character or the mission of HBCUs, if that is the the sort of track that students are being exposed to based on funding, or do you think that HBCUs can maintain that holistic view of what it takes to move community forward?
3: No, I think that question is so spot on, and and you know I think you'll appreciate this this little uh, uh, this little story. I, I, one of the the voices that I ran across in my research. Um, was a person who can really be considered the father of Black political science. Uh, And and that is a gentleman by the name of Dr. Rodney Higgins, uh, who was the the founding um, creator of of the political science department at Southern University. Uh, And I, I ran across a speech that he gave in the 1950s at the National Social Sciences Academy or or organization to something to that extent. But he gave this speech in the 1950s warning, warning that the writing was on the wall, that he was beginning to see a push away um, from supporting the humanities and supporting the social sciences at these institutions. Of course, the 1950s going into the 1960s, we see the beginning of sort of the face race, uh, uh, age, and uh, we're living in a a post-nuclear society. And so those concepts and ideas and technologies begin to filter into, uh, as you said, um, higher education in general, not just black colleges. Uh, and, And so that begins to transform and change the curriculum. And it's Rodney Higgins who says, look, you know what? This is going to be troubling moving forward, particularly for HBCUs. Why? Because HBCUs had again, um, provided a curriculum that um, provided training um, for black students in humanities and social sciences. And without that training, right? How could we equip students um, to to properly articulate the concerns and needs of of black people? And so moving forward, and this is something that I address in, in the epilogue of my book. In fact, the epilogue of that book deals with the corruption of of the HBCU community and how things have in some ways devolved. And a lot of that has to deal with the promotion of STEM. And again, as I often say when I when I give talks and interviews on this, this is not to, to denigrate STEM as a field, right? I think STEM and, and, and black people in STEM are vitally important. Uh, but the humanities and social sciences were the bedrock of the black college experience. If we consistently focus and promote STEM on these institutions. And of course, much of that is done because again, that's where the dollars are. We wanna make sure that the HBCUs are continuing to carve out space um, such as that uh, to where we can think critically about the problems that confront African-Americans and they confront America. And as always continue to try to provide some form of solution, some type of policy um, suggestions to, to address these issues moving forward.
0: Jelani Favors is the Henry E. Fry Distinguished Professor of History at North Carolina A&T State University. He's author of Shelter and a Time of Storm, how black colleges foster generations of leadership and activism. We'll post a link to the People's History of Dixwell walking tour that you heard earlier in the segment. You can find it at our website, ctpublic.org disrupted. Special thanks to Damian Dillard, a 2020 graduate of Metropolitan Business Academy in New Haven. You heard his voice at the beginning of the segment. This episode was produced with support from Kevin Chang Barnum, Katie Tolarski, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Daniela Luna. Special thanks to Nana Danso for serving as the voice of Frederick Douglass. You can find a list of Juneteenth events happening around Connecticut at our website, at ctpublic.org/disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. Thanks for listening.